Heavenly Father, what a what a privilege and joy it is to come out tonight and to study this great book, this uh, incredible uh, word that you've left for us. And I pray that as it ministered to those initial recipients some 2,000 years ago, that it would be uh, ministering to our hearts, that we can get a great um, insight into what it means to have life in you, to, to rest in you and your strength. So we confess our dependence upon you, both myself as teacher and I pray those as students, that you would just be able to open our eyes. We look forward to what you have in store for us this weekend. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's start uh, with some real simple background or basic questions of the book of Romans. I think it's always important whenever you're studying a book just to have some of the background understanding of it because so much of that background helps you understand the context and that context will often be really important when it comes to interpreting what uh, what's being said. So let's start with that. Simple question. Uh, who wrote the book of Romans? The Apostle Paul. Who did he write the book of Romans to? That's the easy question. The Galatians. <laughs> the Romans, right? Go figure. And uh, he wrote the book of Romans. Uh, why did he write the book of Romans? This is a little trickier. Why did he write this book to these people? Was he trying to solve some kind of doctrine, doctrinal error? error? Were, they, were they caught up into some kind of problem within the church? Why did he write this book of, or this letter to this church? To explain the gospel. To explain the gospel, yeah. What's, what's interesting about the book of Romans and along with the book of Colossians, uh, those are, there are two letters that Paul wrote to churches that he had not yet visited. In, in the Galatians and Thessalonians and uh, Ephesians and Corinthians and so forth, he had visited them and so he was now corresponding back to them with this letter that he was writing to them. But with the, the Romans and the Colossians as well, he had not yet been to them. And in fact, if you, if you read the first opening verses of chapter 1, Paul tells about how he wanted to get to Rome. He desired to get to Rome, but he just kept on getting impeded. Something kept on coming up, and he never got an opportunity to go there. So he said, in, instead of me coming to visit with you, instead of me being there in person, I'm going to send you this letter. And in this letter, he was going to lay out to them the gospel that he would have shared with them when he was with them. Now that's really interesting because what that tells us now is that the book of Romans is essentially Paul's systematic theology. Or as you know, some people have called it the gospel according to Paul. I think that's a neat way of looking at it. It's, it's Paul's letter to them explaining step by step what Christianity is all about. And it's for that reason that the book of Romans is, is the single most important book in the New Testament when it comes to understanding Christianity. Because it lays it out. And, and it's done so in a real logical way. That appeals to my engineering mind, how it, how it breaks down. And I, I was told that in a, in a logic class, I think it's in Harvard or Princeton, they actually teach the Book of Romans to teach you logic. Because so much of the structure, so much of the layout is he makes a statement, if this, then this, then this, then that. And, and he's just kind of going through it. He's, he's building the case and explaining it step by step. And, and that makes it really, really appealing to understand now what he's trying to say. And so, to take a look at it, if you want to start, if you brought your Bibles, then God will love you more. That's in there somewhere, isn't it? 
Romans chapter 1. I think here, uh, there's a couple of verses I think really encapsulate what the book of Romans is, is really about. And uh, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, these are the last two verses of Paul's introduction. After this, he's going to jump into the, the meat of it. But uh, verse 16 and 17 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. What Paul's saying here is that the very core, the very central aspect of the gospel, the good news, is this righteousness. This righteousness of God. And that's being proclaimed from start to finish, from faith to faith. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this, this theme of righteousness really is going to kind of permeate throughout the whole book of Romans here. And then, in, in starting in, right in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul dives into it. But what he does is he starts at the beginning. He starts with the problem of mankind. And I think too often in our evangelism, we don't start there. We, just, we jump to the answer about how Jesus loves them and how He died for them, but they have no understanding of why that was necessary. They have no, no context of His love because they don't realize the need for His death. And so Paul starts in verse 18 with really starting with the depravity of mankind, starting with the lost state that man was in. And he talks about the both Jews and the Gentiles, those who had the law, those who didn't have the law, and the mess that they are in. And it didn't matter if you um, were in any part of the world, you were stuck in this, this horrible place of being separated from God. And so he goes on and explains that in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and then all the way even towards the end of chapter 3 where he kind of summarizes it beginning in verse 9. He says, what then are we, to, are we better than they? It's talking about are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks, God, seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Makes it pretty clear, right? I love that the, the term there for useless literally means rotten fruit. That's the picture of you and I before we knew Christ and a picture of the unbeliever today. That He goes on to say that their throat is an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of ass is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the summary of man without God as a result of the fall. So those first three chapters are strictly about the problem. And now he wants to jump into the answer. And so chapter 4 really then becomes about the answer. The answer about salvation and salvation by faith. And how he uses a couple of illustrations. He uses Abraham and David and shows how both were saved by faith. And that's really interesting because David was under the law, but Abraham wasn't. And yet he makes this case that both were saved by faith. So chapter 4 is in some ways a transition chapter. He's transitioning from this unbeliever state to now a believer state. And the process by which we've done that. And so that's all chapter 4 is. So now when we get to chapter 5, which is where we're going to start our study this evening, 
chapter 5 now becomes about how to live in this Christian life. About the now what? Now that we're saved, what do we do? And and that's what makes this book, and particularly this section, Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, so relevant, so important. Some have called it the heart of the gospel, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Because it's so central to understanding the how do I live now that I'm saved. I remember having that question as a kid growing up. Well, I'm saved. That means my past is dealt with. My sins have been forgiven. And my future is secure. I'm going to heaven. But now what do I do? How do I live? And, and how is Jesus relevant to my life today? And, and really, that's what Romans 5, 6, 7, 8 is trying to answer. What has God done? And what does that mean and how do we live out of that? So with that, why don't we begin in your notes in Romans 5, verse 1. What page is that in your notes there? Page 6. So he begins there with, Therefore. So you can see that word therefore is a, is a very much a transition word. It's a it's going from one concept to another. So he's he's no longer talking about how man is saved. Therefore, in light of this, in light of the fact that he was rotten, but now he's saved, he's been reconciled to God, brought back together. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Faith is an interesting word. How would you define faith? What, what would you use to define faith to somebody? I, I've heard described this way that uh, faith is where logic and reason ends and that's where faith begins. Is that a good illustration or a good, a good definition? Well, saving faith involves knowledge, mental assent, and trust. So how would you define faith? What you believe in, you stand in, and you live. What you believe in, what you stand in? Okay. Uh, often people have, have quoted Hebrews 11.1. 1. You can turn to it if you want quickly. Hebrews 11.1 1, and that great passage of the hall of faith as some have called it. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I think that's where they kind of get that idea that it's, you know, faith is you know where logic and reason ends. That's where faith begins. But that doesn't really describe what I think faith is. That, that makes faith almost like a, a wishful thinking sort of idea. Um, and I think the problem with Hebrews 11.1 1 is it's too... Yeah? Faith is trusting what God says is true. Yeah. See, I think that's a whole lot better of a definition. That, that, to me, I can wrap my head around that, that verse. Where Hebrews 11.1 1 seems almost too ethereal, almost too mystical out there. Uh, I think a great verse, if you're looking for a verse that describes faith, a great one is found in Romans chapter 4, just a little bit before where we're starting. In Romans 4, beginning at verse 19, Paul's talking about Abraham and how Abraham, he says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. So here was Abraham. He was almost 100 years old. God had promised him for the last 25 years an heir. He hadn't had one. He had Ishmael, but never had what God had promised him. And so God comes to him and says, in one year from now, you're going to have a son, and it's going to be born of Sarah. And so here's Abraham, becoming, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. 
Remember, they didn't have Viagra back then, right? No little blue pill. So he's thinking, I don't know how this is going to happen. My parts aren't working. Uh, for he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, so they had no fertility treatment. And she's 90, and she's never had a kid. So menopause is way back there. And, and so she's thinking, no way I'm going to have a, a kid. But yet this is what God says. So yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And verse 21, here is, I think, a great definition of faith. Being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. It's kind of what you were saying, Hans, that what standing on what God said he's going to do, he does. And this idea that that we're being fully assured, fully uh, convinced that what God says is true. That what he's going to do or has done is true. And that's a great definition of faith. To me, that's far more... I, I can wrap my head around that. I can hold on to that. I can understand that. But it also speaks to the fact that it's not just this thing that's out there. It's not just wishful thinking. It's, it's putting my assurance in something that's tangible. And the reality is we do it every single day. Many times throughout the day, we are, we are applying our faith. Every time you go to use your debit card, you are having faith that there's money in that account. Some of it is complete prayer of faith, but nonetheless, you're putting your faith that there'll be money in there when you use your debit card. When you came in here, you sat down. You had faith that these chairs would hold you. And what I want you to see is that faith, the power of faith isn't in faith itself. I, I think we see that too many times, particularly when a gospel, uh, pr- prosperity gospel is being preached, where people say, well, your, your faith isn't strong enough. You just don't have enough faith. That's why you're not healed, you're not rich, or things aren't going your way. And when we're doing that, we place our faith in faith itself. Would you say that the power of faith is in the God we trust? Yeah. Or just simply, faith is the power of faith is whatever you put faith into. So here's an illustration um, that Don used to, to... He told me this story um, one time. He and his son went ice fishing. And, and you, you know Don, right? Six foot three, 250 on a good day. And uh, his son is even bigger. His son's like 6'5", 300 pounds. And he's taking Don ice fishing and he, they get into their big pickup truck and drive out into the middle of the ice, pulling their shed behind them. And Don's freaking out. Don's worried. Because what's he worried about being on the ice? He's going to fall through, Right. But his son assures him, he's done this many times. So they drive out middle of the lake where all the sheds are out there. And Don's still nervous, even though he's in the middle of the ice, right? But he's worried. So now it's time to get out of the truck. So what does he do? Real gently, very gingerly, he steps onto the ice. Well, is he adding any more net weight onto the ice? No, he's on the ice. Right? And and the, the truck is far heavier than he is. But he's so worried about stepping on that ice. How much faith does he have? <laughs> Little to none. Right? And yet he doesn't fall through. Well, why? Because it isn't the size of his faith, but what he's putting his faith in, which just happens to be a meter thick ice. Contrast that. Suppose I walk out on ice that's two millimeters thick. And I have all the faith in the world that I'm not going to fall through. What's going to happen? Come on, really? Yeah. How much of my faith prevents me from falling through? 
None of it. It's because I'm putting my faith in the wrong thing, in the wrong object. And so it's where you park your faith that matters. And every one of us has faith to a certain degree. Some place their faith in evolution, which is a real leap of faith, if you ask me. Atheists put their faith in that there is no God. Uh, Muslims and, and Jews, they put their faith in their ability to follow a religious set of commands. As Christians, we place our faith in what? In Jesus Christ. In His life, in His finished work on the cross. We're placing our faith in Him. That's where our power is. And what we need to understand is it's not up to us. It's up, up to Him. A great story out of the book of Acts is the one where Peter's in prison and all the followers of Christ at the time, the, the church essentially, they're worried about Peter's death. So they begin to pray. And what do they begin to pray? For his release. right? They want him to come home. Well, this is the time where the angel comes, opens the doors of the, the prison cell, and Peter walks out. So Peter, who thought he was dead too, and he was dreaming, he, he escapes and he's like, oh, I'm free. So where does he decide to go? Go visit the house. Go visit the church. Go share the good news that he's free. So here he comes to this group of people. And what are they praying for? Peter's release. He comes and he knocks on the door. A, ladies opens, a lady opens the door. And who does she see? And who is she, what have they been praying for? His release. And you know what her response is? Ah! I've seen a ghost! Slams the door and runs back in. How much faith did she have in what she was praying for? Yet what did God do? He released them. See, it's not your faith. That's why Jesus says it's the size of a mustard seed. That's all the faith you need. Just enough to say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. I may not feel it. I'm scared. I'm worried. I have all these concerns. But yet, I'm going to trust you. I'm fully assured that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. That you are strong enough, that you're powerful enough, that you're mighty enough. That's essentially what our salvation was. Now, Lord, I'm fully assured that your death on the cross did everything that was necessary to reconcile me, to take me out of the kingdom of darkness and place me in your Son. And that you've done it all. I'm fully assured of that. That's what faith is. And so what he's saying here, therefore, having been justified by this faith, being fully assured. Well, that raises a good question about this word justified. Let's think about this word justified. What are some definitions that you guys have heard for the word justified? Just shout them out. This will be the audience participation. I'm better than other people. I should get that. Okay. So justified means uh, I'm a good person? Well, no. You're, you're, uh, you're trying to back up a position. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's in our, our common vernacular, I think, that we use in that sense. But in, in a biblical justified, what does it often mean? Just as if I never sinned. Just as if I never sinned? Okay, that's one. What's another one? Declared righteous. Declared or made righteous. Okay, what's some other ones? Forgiven. Forgiven. What's another one? A judge declares a guilty person innocent. Okay. So, um, judgment that declares innocence. Okay. Any others? Maybe shown mercy would be a good one too. Shown mercy? 
Okay. Well, let's do a little word study. And if we were to, to take a look at this word justified in the Greek, the, the, the anglicized version of this word is this here, that dikaio, which I'm pretty sure I didn't pronounce properly. But the, uh, the root word here is this dikaio, and the, the W or the omega in the Greek on the end would be the verb ending of it. And so here, uh, this dikaio would literally mean I justify. But the root word is what we have underlined here. Alright? Don't let your eyes glaze over yet. We're almost through it all. Uh, if you look at the word for righteousness, though, what do you notice? Same root word. Yeah, the, the Greek word for righteousness is dikaiosune. And so, what does that tell you about the connection between the word justify and righteousness? They got the same root word. In fact, we could put it this way, that justified is the verb form of righteousness. So a a way of defining what justified means is it literally means to be made righteous. righteous. Well, what's interesting here is the forgiven, uh, just as if I never sinned, judgment declaring me innocence, showing mercy... What that essentially does is it's essentially just taking away the negative. Right? I'm forgiven. My sins are removed. and And the negative is no longer hold to my account. But to be made righteous is far more than that. To be made righteous... is is imputing or imparting a very positive aspect to things. I think, you know, when I think of this word righteousness... Sometimes, you know, it's a a great biblical word, but it doesn't really mean a whole lot in our world anymore. Um, You know, there's a time where righteous was only used by surfers, you know, talking about good waves and such. And and, and I think we lose the, the power of what it means. And so to me, I think I like the word accepted. It's not a perfect word. I mean, I think a better word, more accurate might be even approved. But what rings true with my heart is this word accepted. That what God's saying and what God's done is he, He's done more than just forgive me. He's done more than just declared me innocent. He's done more than just to forget my sins. He says, I, I accept you. I approve of you. I mean, how many of us have thought about that time when Jesus, you know, He talks about when He sees the servant, He says, good and faithful servant. And we think, oh, I just hope He says that about me. And there's this fear that he's going to say, you wicked, naughty servant. But I guess you're in because of the, you know, I forgave you a long time ago. And come on in here by the skin of your teeth. We have this sense of judgment day isn't going to be very pretty. But yet the reality is because of the cross, because of what God has done, we've already been made righteous. We've already been made approved. We're already accepted. And it's simply justified by your hard work. The amount of money you've given. The church you go to. The the number of times you've read your Bible. The number of people you've led to the Lord. The good works you've done. No, we're therefore having been. What tense is having been? Past. Past tense. It's a done deal. Having been justified by faith. 
having been made righteous, made accepted by faith. Being fully persuaded, fully assured that what Jesus did on the cross was enough to make you and I righteous, to be accepted. That's the beginning of salvation. That isn't the, you know, one day I'll get there. That's at the beginning, at the starting starting gate. Isn't that awesome? So he goes on to say then, so therefore, being justified by, uh, by faith, we have peace with God. Now, is there a difference between the peace of God and peace with God? Yeah, peace, peace of God would be experiencing God's peace. But peace with God would refer to a war going on between two people. And having peace with them would mean that I'm no longer at war with them. Well, what does that say before you and I were, were saved? What does that say about our, our relationship with God? We're at war. We're at enmity with Him. But now... We've got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's an interesting phrase. I think it appears 11 times in these 21 verses of chapter 5 alone. That's amazing. Half the verses have this phrase through the one or through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's Paul emphasizing here? It's only through Jesus. And I, I think, you know, whenever you see repetition in the Bible, it's there for a reason. And so here what Paul's doing is he's repeating. He's driving home the point. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what He's done. It's through Him. Not through you, not through your hard work, not through your effort, but through Jesus, through the one, uh, Jesus Christ. So you're going to see that phrase over and over again. And then it goes on, verse 2, "...through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace." See, that's just the beginning. We're just, we're just getting started here. And so it's an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's really interesting to me. If, if, you, if you think about in the Old Testament, the posture of anybody when they met God, what was their posture? <coughs> Flat on the ground, right? The lower, the better. If you could get a couple inches below the dirt, that was that was really good, right? And so that that was their posture. Why? Because God, yeah, God's God, and I'm rotten fruit, right? I'm unworthy. I'm no good. And so that was the posture that that man would take. And yet now, what's the posture that Paul says? We stand. That, that idea is also in Jude. Which, by the way, it says that God is able to make us stand. So it's not even about us. So what ends up happening is you and I now get to stand in His presence. That, again, that speaks to the work of what Christ has done. That isn't about how good work and, and good smelling I am. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done on my behalf. That I am so approved that I'm so accepted, that I've been made so righteous, that I get to now stand in His presence. I don't have to feel unworthy anymore because He's made me worthy. And I've been introduced to this. It's just the beginning of it. I get to experience this now. And as a result, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. (coughs) 
We look forward to what's going to come. Whether it be Him living in us or whether it be the, the second coming of Christ, we exalt and we glory in that. Wouldn't that be cool? Isn't that cool? To think about how awesome that's going to be and, and to experience the second coming of Christ. For some, I just hope I am on this side of eternity, but if I'm on the other side, that's okay, but it would be great to see it. And so he says we glory in that. Amen? A lot of good things to glory about in these two verses, right? Justified, approved, accepted, made righteous, peace with God. Uh, we now get to stay in His presence. We, we have the, the future glory of God. And not only this, there's more. Oh, what else can we glory about? We get to glory in our tribulations. Isn't that exciting? No. <laughs> not really. Right? This is not a typo. This is exactly what it says in the Bible. That Paul says, not only this, we also get to exalt in our tribulations. Now, there's a couple ways to read this one. One way is you read it and say, Oh, I'm not like Paul at all. <laughs> there is no way I'm glory in my tribulations. He's some kind of super saint, but me, I'm, I'm, you know, cursing and swearing at my tribulations. There's no way I could glory in them. Or there's another one. Another option might be just, you know, kind of grit your teeth. You know, just kind of that grin and bear it mentality. All right, I'm just gonna join these glorious tribulations and how wonderful they are. And and you're gonna, you know, you're just kind of. Grin and bear it. Is that what Paul's talking about? No. Maybe maybe Paul is just kind of ignoring it, right? Just having that positive confession. Because you don't want to have a negative confession. So just, just have a positive confession. Just say all wonderful, kind things and ignore the negative. Is that what Paul's talking about? No. Not at all. Really, I think what, what verse 3 is all about is understanding who God is. It's a concept of God issue. You see, oh, very much so. Very much so. But he, he's saying you can exalt in them. I had a lot of tests in school that I didn't cheer over. So tests to me aren't cheerful. <laughs> Unless you're giving them, maybe. But when you're taking them, they're not a whole lot of fun. But I think Paul is able to exalt in glory because of who he knew God to be. See, every one of us has a concept of God. And I guarantee you, your concept of God is insufficient. It's incomplete. How do I know that? Because if your God can fit between your two little ears, your God's too small. He's way too small. He, he's infinite. Nobody has a perfect concept of God. Nobody. However, there are some people who have better concepts and there are some people who have far worse concepts of God. There are some people whose concept of God is one where God's out to get them. Or, you know, there's another concept of God where God just doesn't really care about you. The, the deist, where he's just kind of spun the earth at the beginning of creation. He's walked away and has nothing to do with us anymore. Or then there's others who, you know, there's a God who's you know, out to get them, who's angry with them, who's upset with them, who's punishing them. And if that's your concept of God, then tribulations is going to feel really unkind. 
Because those tribulations are going to feel like God's punishment of you or God's out to get you. And then there's nothing to glory about. There's just something to avoid. There's something to, to get rid of. But Paul, he knows that that's not the case. He knows what God's heart is towards him. And because of that, he's got a whole different look at these tribulations. Here's why I say it. Look, look at what he goes on to say. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Now, let's start off with tribulations, just so we're clear. Tribulations is not uh, only referring to those times where you're persecuted for your faith. So it's not like, you know, I was sharing the gospel with somebody and then they kicked me out of the, off the bus and it was still moving, right? It, it's not that kind of tribulations. It's not being arrested in, you know, North Korea because you've got a Bible in your hand. It can be, but it's not limited to those tribulations. The word here that's used for tribulation just simply means problems, difficulties. Well, that can mean anything. It can mean health problems. It can mean financial problems. It can mean relationship problems, emotional problems. It could mean all kinds of issues, uh, government issues and so forth. All these tribulations are just general problems. And he says, knowing that these general problems, they bring about perseverance. And the word perseverance here in the Greek means to literally to stand up under. That's, a, that's an interesting picture, word picture there. See, there are some trials in life that are meant to be avoided. Those are good trials, amen? Right? You dodge a bullet, never, never had to deal with it, never had to experience it. Th- those are wonderful problems to avoid because you never had them. But this perseverance is the ability to stand up under the trial. This speaks of, you know, think about the times where people deal with problems that just never seem to go away. For example, health problems, I think, are a great illustration of that. You know, someone is terminally ill with cancer. And terminal means till death, right? Well, perseverance now is the ability to stand up under that trial, to have peace, to have contentment, to have joy despite all the problems that come with that health problem. Or for some people, depression is something that isn't going to go away. Or that there is some kind of nagging temptation that comes with it. I mean, in a general sense, if we want to use the biblical phrase, we would say it's the thorn in the flesh issue. right? Where Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12, how he had a thorn in the flesh that wasn't going anywhere. But yet, when he was weak, then he discovered strength. He discovered the ability to stand up, to persevere under that trial. And there are some trials, there are some tribulations that are not meant to be avoided, that do not come to an end, but nonetheless, you can stand up under. You can persevere under that. And that it's the tribulation that's bringing it about. Now, some translations, I think the NIV says it brings it out. Is that what it says in the NIV? No? 
or produces. No, sorry, the NIV says produces. That tribulation produces perseverance. That, that to me, I think is, a, is not a, an accurate translation because that says to me that tribulation is creating the perseverance. And that's not what it is. Brings about or brings out is a better translation because what it's doing is the tribulation is bringing to the surface something that's already there. It's kind of like toothpaste in a toothpaste tube. How do you get the toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube? You squeeze it. You apply pressure. And it brings about or brings out the toothpaste. Does my squeezing create toothpaste? No. In the same way, the perseverance is in us. Because who's perseverance? Who gives us the ability to stand up under the trial? Jesus. So what the tribulation is doing is it's bringing out the perseverance. Now here's what's interesting, because if you're like me, how many people do not always see perseverance? Right? The rest of you are lying. And the thing is, what tribulation will do, tribulation will expose what you're trusting in. If you're trusting in the flesh and you get squeezed, what's coming out? Flesh. But if you're trusting in Jesus and you're getting squeezed, what's coming out? Jesus. So it's bringing it, it's not creating it, it's not producing it, it's bringing it to the surface and exposing what we're trusting in. Interesting. This verse reminds me of uh, Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good. Very much so. Yeah. yeah, very much. In fact, if you kind of look at this structure of Romans five to eight, it's almost like the beginning of chapter five is like the end of chapter eight. And I think what ends up happening, you know, some people have called it a sandwich, where the beginning of chapter five is one piece of bread, the end of chapter eight is the other piece of bread, and then what do you put in the middle? Meat, right? Not no, no, peanut butter and jam stuff, right? You put real roast beef meat in there. Well, that's what you know. The second half of five, all the way to the first half of eight, is it's that meat. And I think, in some ways, also Romans five to eight, the, the, that meat is a giant aside. That it was a rabbit trail that Paul got on, uh, got onto, and so he started off in chapter five, went on this giant rabbit trail, and then he wraps it all up at the end of chapter eight. We'll see that as we keep going. Yeah. So knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character. Well, whose character were you discovering? Jesus. And also, it's it's building in us that sense of I'm trusting Him. I mean, how many times have you experienced a difficult trial, learned from that trial, and then the next time another trial comes, you've learned already to trust in Him, and so you you go to Him at the beginning. Well, that's that proven character. In proven character, hope. What's hope? Hope is one of those things that we simply cannot live without in this world. I I had no idea about that until someone close to me lost hope. And then I began to really discover how precious hope is. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that faith, hope, love remain. And of these three, what's the greatest? Love. love. Well, I had an understanding that faith was important and, and love was important, but I had no idea how important hope was. And then I began to wonder, well, why is love so important? And, and this is what I've, what I've come to, to believe, that the reason that love is so important is because love will go on to, into eternity. 
that the acts of love we do here will carry on into eternity past. Or eternity future, I guess. Right? But faith and hope, they expire with you and I. Let me put it this way. What do you have to hope for when you get to heaven? What do you have to trust in when you get to heaven? Faith will no longer be required because it's there. You, you, it's, it's, it's nothing. I mean, there, there isn't that sense that you're not trusting in Jesus. It's that, that as, as Hebrew says, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Well, there's nothing left to hope for, and there's nothing left that's unseen. So faith and hope are vital, and they're necessary while we're here on earth. But when you and I die, or when we're called up and transformed, we don't need them anymore. But while we're here, hope is crucial. Hope is so vital. And think about it. When you're going through tribulations, what's one of the first casualties? Hope. What do you begin to experience instead? What's the opposite of hope? Despair, depression, anxiety. Emptiness, that begins to sink in. And really, it's because our hope at that point was probably placed in our circumstances which have gone south rather than in the one in Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 5, in this hope, it does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. That's why I say it's that concept of God issue. Why does hope not just Because God loves you. Simply put, God loves me. Look what he says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. I find that really interesting, the language there. Poured out within. You might think, you know, God's love has been poured out into your hearts. But if it's poured out from within, where's the source? Where does it start from? Starts in your heart. So, if it's the love of God, where is God? Within you. He's not out there. I mean, He is, but more importantly, He's where? In us. All of Him. You know, is it God the Father, God the Son, or Holy Spirit that lives in you? All three. Yes. Right? All of them. You didn't get part of the Trinity. You didn't get a part of God. You got all of Him. All of Him resides in you. And the love of Him, the love of God, is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So He now resides in us and He lives in us. And His love for us is perfect. So He's going to illustrate now how much He loves us. Verse 6, For while we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Alright, let's see if we can understand this. Because this is a, a powerful passage here speaking to the love of God. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. When He says in verse 7, For one would hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. How many people, different people, do you see in verse 7 here? Quite a few. Oh, I see. So we got two or three. No, no, not in the diagram here. Not in, we're not like talking about that. In this verse, though, 
perhaps for the good man, or sorry, one would hardly die for a righteous man. So one is number one, right? That's easy to remember. Would hardly die for a righteous man. That's number two. Though perhaps for the good man, three, someone would dare even to die. So someone, number four. Could it be that it's actually two? I think it's two. That you have the one who's going to die, that's one. You have the righteous man is number two. Though perhaps for the good man, that righteous man, someone, the guy who's going to die, would die for him. The good man and the righteous are the same man, and the one and the someone is, the someone dare to die is the same. Here's what I'm saying. Paul's saying it this way. One would hardly die for, for a righteous person. Well, let me think. Uh, thinking about, well, maybe. Maybe someone would die. I mean, you think about it in our, in our world today. You know, someone might die for, you know, the president or the prime minister, you know, the Secret Service, the RCMP, they might take a bullet. Um, Christians who have chosen to give their life for the person that's right. Think that they might that's right. right. So it, it sometimes happens, right? Where somebody is willing to sacrifice their life for another. So it's not unheard of, but it's seldom. it's seldom. It's rare, right? In fact, would you ever hear of somebody dying for a homeless person? You know, the, the Secret Service were walking down the street and a bullet was fired, and so the Secret Service guy jumped in front of it to protect the homeless guy. Have you ever heard that story before? No, right? You don't tend to hear those stories. What I've got here in my in my diagram here is is a couple of soldiers here because I think this is where I've heard it the most in this context of war, where you know here you have going back to trench warfare of, of World War One or World War Two, where on one side of the line and we got these guys and they're firing on the enemy over here. So we've got the good man and we got the enemy and the enemy throws a grenade towards that good man. And imagine now this good man, he doesn't see the grenade. He has no idea that it's there. What might his buddy do? Might jump onto the grenade to save his friend. Might throw back, yeah. Well, I've, I've heard stories where, particularly if there's you know good men, a few of them, where the guy will come, he'll jump on the grenade, and he'll die, but he'll protect his buddy. Right? We've heard that before. Not always. But it sometimes happens. Right? That's what he's trying to say in verse 7. Look how he applies it in verse 8. But God, God's going to demonstrate, He's going to display His own love towards us, that while we're yet sinners, He's going to, in a couple of years, use the word enemy, Christ died for us. So going back to our illustration now, so now, here's Christ, and here we are. Right? And all of a sudden a grenade is thrown and lands beside us. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus pops out of his foxhole, runs across the field, jumps on the grenade, and he dies so that we live. Have you ever heard of that story in battle? Where an enemy would jump up and run across the field to die for his enemy? No. Yet that's exactly what God did for you and I. That's how much love He has for you and I. Right? 
He proves and demonstrates that love in that while we were enemies, while we were firing on Him, He died for us. Because think about it. Did Jesus die for you after you got your act together? No. When you are still that rotten fruit, when you're still an enemy, He showed His love to you. The, the idea being, if He loved you that much when you're an enemy, how much more will He love you or how much more perfect will His love be now that you're His child? Now that you're standing in His presence? Now that you've been made righteous and approved by faith? That love is unquestioned is what Paul's trying to say. And to be honest... That's really hard to wrap your head around. Because in your own mind, you think, well, yeah, but I know me. I know all my mistakes. I know all my shortcomings. I know all the wrong things I've ever done, even even thought about. And if you only knew half of what went through my head, you know what Jesus says? I do. I know it better than you do. And yet I love you. And I, I'd rather die than be without you. That's how much love I have for you. So if that's the case, then the tribulations that come our way are not got out to get us. <coughs> right? I mean, look what he goes on to say. Verse 9, much more than... He's really just continuing on the thought where he left off in verse 3. I mean, verse 3 was, let's glory in our tribulations. Okay, let me explain that. Here's why. Tribulation brings about perseverance, brings about proven character and hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because God loves you. Still got to keep going. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Let's understand the word wrath here. Um, there are, are seven basic emotions that we experience. Uh, for example, there's happy, there's sad, there's scared, there's confident, there's anger, um, and two others. I don't remember them all. But, but anger is one of the seven basic emotions. And what, what you see is those, those emotions don't cross each other. But within each emotion, there are varying different levels of that emotion. So if wrath is an anger word, there are various levels of wrath or anger. Does that make sense? So let's think about that for a second. Let's talk about some levels of wrath, some levels of anger. And and what we have here on our thermometer, on our scale is we have three levels in general, high, medium, and low. So why don't we take some time here and have you guys kind of just shout out some different wrath words or different angry angry words, and then we'll try to kind of uh, sort them out whether they're a high, medium, or low. Hate. hate. Okay, where would you put hate? High. Yeah, that's pretty high. Starting out with the big guns. Uh, kills not so much an emotion as much as a action. Ticked off. Ticked off. That's a good one. Where would you put ticked off? Low? Medium? Somewhere in between? 
Exasperated. Yeah. Where would you put that one? About medium meditation. Disappointed is a good one. Where would you put disappointed? Low? What's another one? Steam and mad. Good. Where would you put steam and mad? Uh, put that closer to the high. Yeah. It's not just mad. No, no. Steaming mad. Annoyed. Annoyed. Good one. Where would you put annoyed? Low. Low? Fed up. Fed up. That's a good one. Where would you put fed up? Between uh, me and Livid. Livid. Where would you put livid? If you said low, I'm I'm not going to get on your bad side. What's what's some other ones? Fuming. Good. Okay. Where's fuming? Break out your thesaurus now. Ballistic. Ballistic. <laughs> Mark, you have a lot of high wrath words. Is there? You okay? Or <laughs> I watch too much hockey. <laughs> um, some other ones. Irritated. irritated. Good. Where would you put irritated? Frustrated. Frustrated. That's a good one. Where would you put frustrated? Medium. Medium. Angry. Angry? Yeah. Where would you put angry? One more. Furious. Furious? All right. Here are some that I had earlier. So we have furious, incensed, enraged, rabid. You missed that one, Mark. So rabid, infuriated, uh, mad, angry, burned up, irate, uh, ticked off, frustrated, annoyed, perturbed, irritated, upset, agitated, disappointed. Here's, here's what I want you to see here. Is all these words that we have here on the PowerPoint and the words that you guys listed off on the board here, they're all degrees of wrath. Right? Whereas up here, ballistic and, and furious and hate and livid, those are high degrees of wrath. Whereas annoyed and disappointed and irritated, those are low levels of wrath. But they're all wrath. Does that make sense? You with me? Well, look again at what verse 9 says of chapter 5. Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. You know, when I, when I first read that verse, I, I think of it in this terms, that if I'm saved from the wrath of God, I understand that I'm now saved from God being really furious with me. And I understand that God's no longer going to be incensed and enraged and rabid or livid with me because of what Jesus has done on the cross. But if I'm honest, what I struggle with is when I've committed a sin, and it's you know a sin that I've committed a number of times or, or I make a stupid mistake, I'm thinking at times that God's pretty <coughs> frustrated with me or He's annoyed with me or He's disappointed with me. And when I feel that, then I feel like um, I gotta, I gotta do something to get in, back into the good books. That I got to earn or curry favor with Him, not because of the big things. No, no, that's what Jesus' blood did. But now I'm just, I'm annoying Him 
day in there. When will you get it? When will you gonna when are you gonna learn? How many times before you, you get your act together? But the reality is, if I'm saved from the wrath of God, I'm not just saved from him being furious and incensed and enraged with me, I'm also saved with God being mad at me. I'm saved with God being burned up or ticked off with me. I'm saved from God being frustrated with me. I'm saved from God being annoyed and perturbed and irritated and upset. I'm saved from God being agitated, disappointed with me. I'm saved from God being frustrated with me. Because He didn't just deal with some of or part of the wrath. He dealt with all of it. So remember the context here. Remember what Paul's talking about. We can glory in our tribulations. Too often our tribulations feel like punishment. Too often we can interpret our tribulations as being God's angry with me or He's, he's upset with me or He's out to get me. And Paul's saying that's not the case. God's not out to get me. He's not out to punish me. He loves me. He demonstrated that love while we're enemies. Much more than all that wrath has been poured out. And what that means is any tribulation that's come into my life is coming into my life because my God loves me and that there's a reason behind it. Now, please understand, that doesn't make the tribulation less painful. I mean, tribulation is going to hurt. That's why it's called tribulation. right? If it's not that, then it's a vacation. But that's not what it says. It says tribulation. Because it's hurtful. It's hard. I love Hebrews 12.11. All discipline, we could use the word tribulation in that passage to paraphrase, all tribulation in the moment doesn't seem joyful, but sorrowful. Well, yeah. But it goes on to say, yet to those who've been trained by it, those who've discovered that perseverance, that proven character, that hope, afterwards yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that's coming off the heels of the writer Hebrews talking about the love of a father who's disciplining their child. Who's allowing that child to grow. So if tribulation's coming into our lives, if those difficulties and those trials and those hardships are coming into our lives, it's simply because God is wanting to use that to grow us. To bring us to a deeper experience of His love. A deeper experience of His grace. A deeper understanding of His power. As Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Please understand, he didn't suddenly lose being weak when he became strong. He was still weak, but he had strength at the same time. And only Christians can do that. Only Christians can weep and have joy at the same time. When we lose a loved one who's going to be with Jesus, we're crying on earth because they're gone, but we're excited for them because they're with Jesus. At the exact same time. But the trials and tribulations are not out to get us. Amen? Any questions so far? Yes? Um, verse 9, saved from the wrath of God. I've heard that verse being used to teach the fact that we are saved from the wrath, i.e. the bulls, in Revelation. Oh, okay. Not like you, you're using... Mm-hmm. Yeah. But think of the context, though. 
Yeah, and that's why I think context is so important. It's a number one rule when it comes to interpreting scripture. A context or a text without a context is a pretext. That's the the phrase, right? So you take a text out of its context, you can get it to say anything you want. Well, in the context of what Paul's talking about here, he's not talking about the future bowls of wrath and judgment day. What's he talking about? The trials and tribulations that we're experiencing right now. That we get to glory in. And, and I know he's talking about that because when we get to verse 12, he's going back to where he left off in verse 3. See, verse 4 to verse 11 is just a giant aside. It's, a, it's an explanation of what he says in verse 3. So he makes a statement, we can glory in our tribulations. Whoa, Paul, you got to explain that. Okay. Knowing our tribulations bring about perseverance and proven character and hope. And that doesn't disappoint. I know because God loves us. Oh, you got to explain that. Okay. He demonstrated his own love for us, that he died for us while we were, his enemy, while we were enemies. Much more than having that love, we're going to be saved from his wrath. So the trials and tribulations, they're not God's punishment of you and I. It's not God out to get us. I mean, me as a parent, I don't want to punish my kids. I want to discipline my kids. Now, it may look similar, but it's got a whole different notion to it. Punishment means I'm just out to get you. I'm going to make you pay because you made me pay. Discipline is I want you to learn. I'm going to teach you. So you learn not to make the same mistake. Now, am I a better parent than God? You, it's okay. You won't hurt my feelings. I'm not. Not even close. Well, God's the perfect parent. So why is He going to punish us, His kids? He has no need to. Why? Because all the wrath, all the punishment we deserved, where was it taken care of? On the cross. All of it's been poured out. So what's left? Nothing. Now, does that mean that God's never sad? No. No, He's sad. In fact, if you understand disappointment, I think disappointment is one of those words that could be upset, but it could also be sad. And in a sad sense, yeah, He's disappointed. But He's disappointed because of the consequences that my sin has brought. Because sin always has consequences. But he's not angry with me. I mean, you think of it this way. For God, you think, is God surprised when we sin? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? <laughs> right? He's not surprised by it. He's not going, this is great, we're having a wonderful day. What did you just do? You sinned. I never saw that coming. I mean, is that God? No. Before you do it, he knew about it. And guess what? He's already dealt with it. He's already paid for it. So what's left? Let's get going. we got a mess we got to clean up, but let's keep going. Let's learn from it so we don't make the same mistake again. Because there are still consequences, but my love for you never changes. And again, the context here is, is dealing with tribulations in the present. He's not jumping to Judgment Day. 
even in the general flow of the of, of Romans, remember, chapters one to three was the problem of man, chapter four is him getting saved, chapter five is now how do we live in that? He's not going to jump to judgment day. That's not what he's he's talking about how do we live right now. In light of all that, we face these tribulations. So the only reason you would connect the, the bowls of wrath to wrath is that they both use the same word. But that's okay. Wrath is not limited to judgment day. But I think this is great to know that he's not annoyed with me anymore. I'm annoyed with me. But he's not. So much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Verse 10 is really just a, 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 the next thought, the next step along this line here. For if while we're enemies, we reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, to understand this verse, again, I think you have to understand the context here. The context is what? Dealing with tribulations. So here, the we shall be saved. What are we being saved from? Tribulations. Or maybe not saved from, but what are we being saved in and through? Tribulations. How? By His life. I grew up thinking that I was saved by the death of Jesus. You know, I prayed that sinner's prayer. You know the sinner's prayer? Lord, please forgive my sins and come live in my heart or come live in me. I prayed that prayer hundreds of times as a kid. A, I had a little sister who I tormented, so I had a lot of sins. So every time I'd sin, I felt I had to pray it again. Good little Baptist boy, right? And, and another reason why I prayed it so many times was because I was worried that maybe God didn't get the message because there are a lot of other kids praying at the same time, apparently, because they all lifted their hands. I peaked, so I had to pray again. Um, you know, maybe maybe I didn't pray it right, or I, I I was a little kid, so I just prayed it hundreds of times, and I understood why I need to be forgiven of my sins, little sister. But I had no idea why Jesus came to live in me. No idea. I remember my oldest Hannah when she was four years old. She said to me, "Daddy, I know why Jesus lives in me," and I was curious because for the first twenty years of my Christian life, I had no idea, and I said, "Well, why?" So we can watch the food go down. <laughs> That's a cute answer for a four-year-old. But I had been a Christian for nearly 20 years and I couldn't give a better answer. I had no idea why Jesus came to live in me. Until this verse and other verses like it began to tell me. Here it is. He came to live in me in order that He would live in me. It's so simple, I missed it. He literally came to place His life in me to do what I could never do on my own. So that He could replicate His life through me towards other people. So that whatever the trial, whatever the tribulation is, whatever the difficulty is, that now that we've been reconciled, now that we're, we're one, I'm going to be saved through it by His life. So whose peace am I going to rely upon? His or, his or mine? His. Whose strength? Whose love? Whose wisdom? You see, the, the, one of the great mistakes we've made in Christianity today is we've made it all about us. 
What are you doing for Jesus? I'm going to live my life for Him. I'm going to give my life to Him. And the heart of Christianity is that God has given His life to you, to me. He's come to literally live in you in order that He would live His life through you. That's what makes Ephesians 5.25 so possible. Right, guys? Ephesians 5.25. What does it say? Husbands? Love your wives. wives. I mean, Valentine's Day is not that far, guys. I mean, Ephesians 5.25. Yeah. Husbands? (laughs) You got a whole year to practice, right? Till next Valentine's Day. You're all spent, right? Husbands, love your wives. How? (coughs) That's the sad news, right? Oh, Christ loves the church, right? What's the standard? As as Christ Himself. Can think about guys, can we love our wives as Christ loved the church? As wonderful as your wife is, you don't stand a chance. Because the problem's not your wife, right guys? What's who's the problem? I simply don't have what it takes to love my wife the way she needs to be loved. I can't do it. The good news is God's not asking me to pull it off. Instead, I am going to be saved from loving my wife as he lives his life through me. Now please, the mistake that people hear, they think, well, he's talking passive Christianity. He's just, you know, let God do it. Well, if God was over there and I'm over here and I let God do it, then yeah, it would be. But where does God live? In me. So if God wants to love my wife, guess who he's going to use more often than not? Me. So he says, Ross, get up, walk across the room, give her a hug. Tell her you love her. And who's doing that? Is it me or Jesus? The answer is yes. Right? It's Christ living His life through me. And in that moment, I experience His love. Now, it's easy to love my wife on good days, but what about bad days? You know, when she's you know not loving me, when things aren't going my way, when I'm upset. Now it's not so easy. But what's the command? Guys, Love your wives on good days. Is that what it says? Just says love them. So even on the bad days where maybe she's upset and mistreating me, I still got to love her. How am I going to be saved from that moment? By His life. By Jesus living in me. Loving my wife through me. And that doesn't matter. Same with my kids, with my friends, with co-workers with people at church, even Montreal Canadiens fans we have to love. I know, I know. I thought that's what the wrath was for. But So verse 11 now, he's coming back to where he left off in verse 3. Remember, we, we exalted, first we exalted in the fact that we have peace with God, we're justified by faith, and that we get to stand in His presence, and the, the future glory of God, and, and our tribulations. And oh, by, this, by the way, not only this, but we also exalt in God. Isn't that awesome? We get to glory in God. See, it's not just what He does for us. 
It's not just what He gives us. We just get the glory in Him. And how great and how awesome, how wonderful He is. We get the glory and exalt in Him through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's all about Him through whom we've now received the reconciliation. We are once apart, but now we've been reconciled. We've been brought near. He now lives in us and us in Him.